right, kiddos, y'all dismissed. Y'all have a good class. We'll be in Ezekiel tonight. Trust everyone read Ezekiel, studied it thoroughly before coming. Exciting book. Let's, uh, let's pray. We'll get right to it. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity here um, to be blessed with another Wednesday night. To know that in the other building our children are gathering and being encouraged, um, being taught, um, that there's edification taking place that is central to the word, that is an encouragement to us. And I'm thankful too that we are able to gather and to have any insight from the spirit at all. Um, I'm thankful uh, for, the, for the prophets and studying them. It, it is difficult. It's, it's not quite the, uh, the narrative encounter uh, that's easy to understand, but it's worth the work. And so I pray that you'd help us to do the work tonight. I pray that you would help us to, uh, to dig deep, even if it's in just this, this first chapter, and uh, you would be glorified as, as we're edified. Lord, we, uh, we pray for those who aren't with us tonight. There, there's some that are traveling, doing uh, work uh, of various kinds. Pray that you'd watch over them, keep them safe, let them be diligent for your glory. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Ezekiel tonight. That is right after Lamentations. I just wanted to see. Um, we've had, what, five weeks now in the, the major prophets. What are some sort of high watermarks, big points that y'all have come away with on the major prophets? Things that stuck out. Things that, if you look back on the last five weeks, it's like, oh, that's something I remember. You know, anything at all. <laughs> anything at all. The prophets were not often very popular. The prophets were not often very popular. Yeah, I remember as a kid growing up and thinking, man, how cool it would have been to be a prophet. You know, you hear so directly from the Lord. You got like this thing with God that's so direct and... And the people would you know, listen when you talk. How cool must that have been? And studying the prophets the last few weeks, I'm like, not only do the people not want to listen to you, but the conditions are quite perilous that you are ministering in. And so uh, I'm not as jealous of the prophets as I was before this study, yet to have such a direct word from the Lord must have been a blessing that would be very hard to explain in the words you were told to prophesy. Yeah, not so popular. What else? Yeah, they, them, uh, the prophets, part, part of the role for them sometimes was interceding 
for the people and crying out and asking the people to repent and to stop and even going to God and saying, God, you know, help us. It, it was deep. It is, there's no, not much light fare in the major prophets thus far. What else? Yeah. Shocking how, um, how disengaged the hearts were uh, with God. As we go into Ezekiel, um, this book is stinking crazy. That's about all. <laughs> I was like, what's a good, eloquent intro that I could give that everyone would remember? And this book is stinking crazy. The things that we will engage in Ezekiel, yeah, if you're taking notes, stinking crazy. No G, just a little posture thing. <laughs> Um, the things that, are, that we'll engage here, the things that Ezekiel was called to do are, um, well, crazy. I, I don't have a better word. It, it is almost bizarre at times. And um, it's a pretty long book. I think 48 chapters is, is what it is, I believe. And um, what I've decided is we were going to have two weeks in Ezekiel and then sort of a conclusion study and rather than doing a conclusion study, I'm just going to do three weeks in Ezekiel. And I'll explain that according to um, the structure of the book in just a moment. So a little background on Ezekiel. Ezekiel lived during the same time as Jeremiah. We studied Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah was called the what prophet? The weeping prophet. Why? He weeped. And why did he weep? Yeah, what were some of the things that he had to tell to Israel? You're going to be taken captive. And when they came to him and said, we're surrounded, prophet of God, what should we do? What did he say? Surrender. That's fantastic. And then when King Zedekiah wanted to know what was going on, what did he tell King Zedekiah? You're going to die. So, very popular message from Jeremiah and then we went into Lamentations, where uh, we believe, how did we state it to be correct? Most theologians believe that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, being referred to as a weeping prophet. There's Second Chronicles um, passage that we considered saying Jeremiah wrote the laments. Um, but what, what, was the, what was the main point of Lamentations last week? What was the main point? Grace and mercy. Divine judge, yep. How to deal with suffering. Yeah. And so we've got sort of a grim background that leads us into Ezekiel, but Ezekiel, he lived at the same time as Jeremiah. The difference is his ministry took place in exile in Babylon. So Jeremiah was the one who prophesied to the people saying, hey, we're about to go into exile in Babylon. And Ezekiel was the one who was called on by God to prophesy while in exile, while in Babylon. Um, Ezekiel was likely exiled to Babylon with the royal family and other leading citizens in 597 BC. And you've heard us talk about 587 BC because that's when uh, Jerusalem was finally knocked out and the temple was destroyed. So 
It wasn't until 10 years later, after Ezekiel's exile, um, that Jerusalem would be entirely destroyed. Ezekiel's background before, because, you know, his, his prophecies began at that time when he was exiled. Before he was exiled, Ezekiel was a trained priest. Um, trained as a priest in Jerusalem, Ezekiel knew the religious life of his people well. And he knew things would be shockingly different if there was no Jerusalem and if there was no tabernacle and if there was no priesthood because they had been um, laid waste by Babylon. So he was trained in the priesthood. He knew the religious life of his people well. And Dever notes in his survey that God had prepared this young priest to be his special mouthpiece to the Jews in exile. So that's a little bit of background. He was a trained priest, served the same time as Jeremiah, but he served in the exile in Babylon is when his prophecies began. The content, um, so we're going to do background content and then structure and three basic sequences of visions because this book is crazy in case I haven't said it before. Ezekiel was called by God to communicate some fantastic and plain weird visions in ways that were also a bit fantastic and weird. Uh, we'll talk next week about, like, like at one point he laid on his side for I think like four years to prove a point that God wanted him to prove. So he laid there on his side. Um, at one point his wife was taken from him and he was told to mourn in, in a way that was different where he couldn't really express it so that Israel would have to do the same thing. And many other far crazier things than that. Um, so crazy is the book of Ezekiel that I found a source in the mid-1900s, like 1950s-ish. Uh, E.C. Broom, B-R-O-O-M-E, read Ezekiel and presented a Freudian analysis of Ezekiel based on the text. So E.C. Broom presented a Freudian analysis of Ezekiel based on the text. And it's kind of hard to do that kind of analysis like 2,000 years after, your 2,500 years after the person was actually alive. But his conclusion was, he was a true psychotic, characterized by narcissistic, masochistic conflict with attendant fantasies of castration and unconscious sexual regression, schizophrenic withdrawal, and delusions of persecution and grandeur. So if we're going to embrace this book, that gives you a bit of an idea of how you might be viewed as one who would read Ezekiel and think that there's something to be taken from it that is worthwhile for the Christian today. A true psychotic. <laughs> I mean, that, that whole thing, it's, it's shocking that, that he would read that, and that's, that's, but it's a Freudian analysis, and Freudian was crazier than everyone else, so that's fine. Uh, so uh, we won't go into any of that because it'll be a real long rabbit trail. So parts of this book are so strange that like Song of Solomon, some Jewish rabbis would often not allow young men to read it until they were 30 for fear of discouragement and unnecessary confusion because of how crazy and weird the book of Ezekiel is. So as a rabbi who was being, or a, as a one who was being trained by a rabbi in the priesthood, there would be like this small stack of books over here. And one was Song of Solomon and one was Ezekiel. And it would be, they would be going about their training and at one point, you might say, hey, what are those? Don't worry about that. You're not 30 yet. We don't want to confuse you. Ezekiel falls in the category with Song of Solomon. So interesting. The structure of this book, there's two halves. The structure is really not all that complex. 
It's good to look at structure we learned in Lamentations. It was a poetic structure that found its, its apex in the third chapter, which was three times longer than all the other 220-verse chapters on either side of it. Um, this just has two halves. First, uh, chapters 1 through 24, the Lord tells his people of his judgment on them. Chapters 1 through 24, the Lord tells his people of his judgment upon them. And really, the climax comes in chapter 24 when word comes to Ezekiel that the siege from Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar had begun. So word comes to Ezekiel in chapter 24, the siege has begun. Nebuchadnezzar is moving. Babylon is, is beginning their work. And that was sort of the, the peak point of the book. And then verses 20, or chapters 25 through 48, Jerusalem falls, and Ezekiel prophesies more about hope and restoration that God promises, which is remarkable. We'll look at that in a minute. And then in that section are also included um, a whole lot about judgment on all of the surrounding areas, reminding us that it wasn't just God's house. Judgment begins with the house of God, but it certainly was not God's house that judgment was limited to. It was limited to nobody. And then um, overall, for a timeline purpose, Ezekiel's prophecies um, stretched about two decades. Two decades. So he began about... 10 years before the fall of the tabernacle in Jerusalem, and he went about 10 years after. And so two decades stretch Ezekiel's prophecies, and there are three basic sequences of visions. And you may be like, okay, can we just get to the text? It structures visions. What is the deal, Scott? If we don't get these three visions, we won't get the book. If we do get these three visions, we'll likely get the book, and you'll walk away with something that's, that's fruitful and maybe a, a bit memorable. So these three visions... Chapters 1 through 3 are this first vision where God reveals himself to Ezekiel and explains to Ezekiel what his role will now be as a prophet in exile. Ezekiel is in Babylonian exile and sees God coming to him in a vision. That's vision 1. Vision 2 is in chapters 8 through 11. And it's a flashback, sort of this Ebenezer Scrooge sort of flashback thing where he takes him back to the temple... Um, Eb I just said Ebenezer. Did anyone realize that? <laughs> Ebenezer, not to be confused with Nebuchadnezzar, um, both evil and grimy in their own ways. Um, Ebenezer Scrooge, it's sort of this flashback where he goes and he appears to, um, uh, to Ezekiel and he says, he, he takes him and he shows Ezekiel his presence departing from Jerusalem because of the idolatrous worship being practiced in the temple. So he kind of takes him back in this vision to the temple and he shows the people and their idolatrous practices in the temple. And then he shows Ezekiel his departing from Jerusalem because of that. And then chapters 40 through 48, the third vision, are a long concluding sequence in which God comes to his people in a rebuilt temple. And that's actually a bit more encouraging than the, than the first two. So at this point, I think the goal is going to be to spend one week on each of these three visions. One week on each of these three visions, and tonight we're not going to get far from chapter 1 in Ezekiel. So the first vision we're going to consider tonight is a vision of God the King. Tonight we're considering a vision of God the King. So look at Ezekiel 1-1 with me. <clears throat> in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, 
on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now, by itself, that verse isn't all that big of a deal. Contextually, that verse is huge. Contextually, this verse is huge. I'll read it again. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. In Jeremiah 38, Jeremiah tells Israel that in order to live, they have to surrender to Babylon. If you want to continue to be God's people who are living on the created earth, you will have to surrender to Babylon. And now, they're in exile. They've done what Jeremiah said they had to do, and they're in exile. And what's remarkable about this first verse is that they're in exile and God speaks to them. I want us to see that's something that's never happened before. This, is the, the, this has never been a situation that Israel's ever been in. This is new. Now, they're in exile, and what God does is he confirms his promises to them by appearing to Ezekiel in this vision. The fact that God revealed himself reveals God's presence with them, with an exiled people, showing that God is not contained to geography or buildings in case they thought he was. And the reality is they were leaning far too heavily and depending far too much upon the good gifts that he gave them rather than a relationship with him. And that's a theme that we're going to see. And there's a bit of sort of a timeout that, that Babylon serves for the nation of Israel. So I'm going to read aloud the rest of the first chapter. Read along with me. And what I want you to think about as I read this, think about Ezekiel sitting on by the Kedar Canal with the other exiles. Think about him sitting there. Think about him picturing the heavens opening up and him seeing visions of God. And this is what he writes to explain to those who would come after what God revealed to him. So I want you to consider, like sit with him there on the Kedar Canal. Import your senses. What would this look like? What would this smell like? What questions would you have? What would you be wanting to tell people? Consider what this would be like. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the, ex, uh, of the exile of King uh, J. Joaquin. You're welcome, I nailed that one. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, um, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their, their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. 
Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were the faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. <laughs> Whenever, wherever the spirit would go, they went. Without turning as they went, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living creatures... <coughs> I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. Now, let's just wrap our head around verse 17. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. Everyone got that? Okay, fantastic. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose, these, uh, when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels." Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse of over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, 
and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Everyone got that? Kind of a complex, detailed thing. If I was to have like an easel and a big thing of paper and all the pastels you wanted, could you draw that? If five people drew it, do you think it would look remotely the same? Many artists have tried to draw that, and I don't think that's the point. This is a vision of God. So, in this vision, what could Ezekiel see? What one word would you use to describe God in this chapter? If you, if you just, like, I want to hear some different one-word answers. Because you could just read parts, wheels, eyeballs, tall, awesome, whatever. Um, what one word could you use to describe what, is, what Ezekiel saw in God in this revealed vision? Everything? Yeah, a little bit of everything. Gleaming and brilliant? Magnificent? Otherworldly, unhuman, yes, detailed. I don't know how you don't turn but turn, or you go every direction without turning. Like I, I don't even, yeah, yeah. Perichoresis is a great word there. A lot of things wrapped up, moving there in a sort of a dance type movement. What else? What other words would you throw out there to describe what I just read? Unimaginable. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm encouraged at how he used words like, like this thing, or having the appearance of this, or it's almost like he's saying the best word I could say was like it was sort of like a waste, and then it was like metal that was like hot. But then there was like glowing, and it's, it's the kind of explanation that uses the word like a lot, um, because it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. What God revealed to him was different. It was unusual. Potentially. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, there's this, there, I mean, he's got a role that God's giving him saying, this is what you tell people. And so that, I mean, if I just went to the city council meeting, I was like, hey, I'm a pastor. I'd like to read a little something. I think it'd benefit everybody. <laughs> As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north. I mean, that, that, it would sound crazy. So you're exactly right. It would probably sound crazy. But I think what, what we need to see here in this first chapter, which we're not going to stray far from tonight, are a few different things. And the first is just that God is different and unusual. It's good to remind us, ourselves of that. We are made in the likeness of God. That's to understand who we are. That's to understand how we were created. But you can't flip the equation and say, so he's in our likeness. No, no, no. You have a part of his likeness. But apparently, his likeness is more complex than two arms, two hands, two legs. We've got wheels with eyeballs that are tall and glowing things and wings and heads and ox and eagle and human-ish and... I mean, it's pretty complex, and it's good for us to be reminded that God is different. 
He's unusual. That said, what are some caricatures that we have of God? What are some ways that we have a tenant? If you saw God in a Hallmark movie, you know, what's he going to look like? What'd you say? George Burns. Smokes a stogie, you know. Yeah. What are some other ways that we caricature God? Big man upstairs. What else? Glowing. Yes. There's sort of a, what'd you say? Clouds, lots of clouds. We need clouds. White robe, yeah. He's usually white, as luck would have it for us. Do what? He usually has a very deep voice, like Morgan Freeman. Yeah, the big man upstairs, sort of the grandfather in the sky um, sort of picture. We've got a lot of ways that we kind of caricature God, and I think it's good to read the first chapter of Ezekiel. Just really remember, he's different. Like, if you saw God, you wouldn't be like, oh, man, we are so alike. You'd be like, you are so not like me. That would be the emphasis that you would leave with after an encounter like that with God. So that's the first thing I want us to consider tonight. Number one, in this vision of God as king, is God is not like us. You are like God, created in his image. God is not like us. (laughs) We don't really have a parking place for, for equations like that. But he's not like us. The Bible calls God holy. What's the difference between possessing holiness and being holy? If you possess it, you can lose it. Yeah. If you possess it, you can lose it. That's a great answer. This is one of those questions where I'm studying and I'm like, I don't really have a good answer. I'm just going to write it down and ask it. If you possess it, you can potentially lose it. But if you are holy, you are holy. What's, it, what's another difference between possess- one, one, one gives and one receives? One gives and one receives. Yeah. What else? Here's what I want us to see here. The Bible refers to him as being holy over and over again. Um, I want us to remember that Ezekiel was a trained theologian. He was a priest. He was very familiar with who God was. He was very familiar with how God had revealed himself in the past. And I want us to see that Ezekiel, the priest, this young priest who was being, who was sitting in this place and God opens the sky and reveals himself to Ezekiel. I want us to see his new knowledge of God did not make him feel more casual about God at all. What does he do at the end of the chapter? He falls on his face. There was, it, this wasn't this sort of chummy, buddy-buddy, man, look at that, bumps, God, that was amazing. You got like three heads and, and wheels with, with eyeballs on them. Awesome. No, there was no casualness about this. He fell on his face. This is a trained theologian. This was one who was being brought up in the priesthood. And when he found out something new about God, when he saw a part of God that he didn't otherwise know, when he began to understand how you can't plumb the depths of who God is, he was awed by God. He didn't feel more casual about God. Just a question. I don't want y'all to answer it out loud. I want y'all to consider it. Do 
you respond with awe when you learn something new about God. It's, it's, it's terribly important that we never lose our awe. It's terribly important that we never lose our awe. And so when you hear something new about God, when you see something new in the scriptures, when you read about these wheels with eyeballs and all these different wings and faces and, and, and glowing and glowing and like metal on fire, is there a part of you that says, man, whoa, he is altogether different and mighty and good? Or is it common? Is it sort of a casual thing? Because for this trained theologian and priest, it was not casual. Every vision of God in the Bible is awesome. Every vision of God in the Bible is awesome, and it inspires reverence because he's not like us. The second thing I want us to see in this vision is that God is all-powerful and all-wise. Look at verse 6. Each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Look at verse 10. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And then in 17, um, it says, um, in 17, it says, when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. So my question is, um, what direction do the four faces look? Every direction. So, God is all powerful and all wise. God's revealing himself to Ezekiel, and there are these faces that are very complex that look in every direction. This is a picture of omniscience. In conjunction with the other details there and the faces and how they moved and where they went, you could, you could conclude it, you could sort of summarize it by saying, being everywhere Seeing and perceiving every detail and able to move in every direction at every time. That's how God's revealing himself to Ezekiel here. I'm going to say that again. (coughs) Being everywhere, seeing everything and perceiving every detail and able to move in every direction at every time. I was trying to figure out a way to kind of bring that home because it's like, wow never seen that before. Imagine if you could put that on your resume to, to help understand it, to help wrap your head around it. Imagine if you could write on your resume, why should you hire me? Well, I, I'm able to be everywhere, see everything, perceive every detail, and if you're worried about if I can multitask or if I'm flexible, um, I can actually move in every direction at every time. Do I get the job? I mean, if you could put that on your job description, if you could put that on your resume, that would, people would be certain that you were trustworthy and you could get the job done, right? Maybe that's what God's trying to communicate here. God can move in every direction at every time without turning. I mean, I dare someone to stand up and try to do that. Move in every direction every time without turning. We don't have a parking place for that. It's altogether different. He's saying, I'm doing things that not only can you not do them, you can't even wrap your created brain about how I can do them. God's altogether different. He's all-powerful, and he's all-wise. We should be certain that he is trustworthy and able to get the job done if that is how he moves according to this weird chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Third, 
God's not limited by circumstances. This is something that I just want us to see. The fact that he goes to them when they're in exile reveals so much about God that maybe they had forgotten, maybe they had lost sight of. First, he's not limited by Jerusalem or the tabernacle. He's not limited by Jerusalem or the tabernacle. He would appear to them in the tabernacle, but now that it's destroyed... He can appear to them where his people are. Second, he's not limited by a scattered people. His people are all over the place. They're not centralized in Jerusalem. They don't have a capital city anymore. They don't even have a priesthood anymore that could do anything with the tabernacle if it hadn't already been knocked down. And he is not limited by a scattered people. Where do his people exist now? all over the globe, and it does not limit him one bit. Third, he's not limited by Babylon. Babylon doesn't have God in the vice. Oh, we're going to put the pressure on now. He's not limited by Babylon. His people are in Babylonian exile. Babylon is exercising certain authority over his people, and God appears to his people in a vision, and the clouds part, and he shows himself to Ezekiel in a way that is different and remarkable and shows that he's very, very present. So he's not limited by Jerusalem. He's not limited by the tabernacle. He's not limited by scattered people. And third, he's not limited by Babylon. Dever notes, um, friend. Uh, anytime I share one of Dever's quotes, I, I'm going to start with friend because that's what he says all the time. Um, friend, God is not limited to where you think you last spotted him. This is really encouraging to me. It's the reason I'm sharing his quote. Friend, God is not limited to where you think you last spotted him. Maybe there was a time when you felt especially close to God. Perhaps he had blessed you through a particular author or a particular preacher or a particular church or a particular worship style, maybe a good friendship, maybe even through a particular job. But now you're troubled, uncertain, and afraid you've lost the ability to be near him because the circumstances have changed. It is wonderful to know God's blessings through all of those avenues, but remember that God can work in many, many ways. God is not limited by circumstances. We are oftentimes limited in a number of different ways by circumstances. God is not limited by circumstances. Friend, God is not limited to where you think you last spotted him. I had this kind of... Uh, we had the youth group that had the, the big camp in the summer and then the, uh, the big Chi Alpha Disciple Now weekend, usually in, I think, February or January. And those were all like the mountaintop experiences. They'd bring in a good band and they'd bring in a good speaker, and, which must have been weird for the guys who did it normally. And um, it, there would be this appeal and this this atmosphere and this closeness to God. And it was almost so amazing that you just couldn't wait until the next camp or the next Disciple Now kind of weekend. And people could get into the mindset of thinking, you know what, if I'm going to be close to God and if I'm going to hear from God, I'm going to need the lights a certain way. I'm going to need the candles lit. I'm going to need a particular band playing in a particular style. I'm going to need a particular speaker or preacher to stir my emotions in a particular way, and I'd really prefer it out of this particular text. 
And it's so good to remember that they're near the Kedar or Kebar Canal in exile. And God just shows up in a remarkable way. I mean, an amazing way. Showing that they are not without him. So don't be discouraged by the fact that your conditions and circumstances may have changed. Know that God can work in many ways and he's not limited by circumstances. And frankly, if we're going to be honest in what we've seen in the scripture in like the last five books we've studied, a lot of times it's right smack dab in the middle of the struggle and the frustration and the heartache where God will reveal things to you that you would have otherwise never seen. All powerful, all wise, and not limited. The fourth thing is God takes the initiative. In verse 1, the heavens were opened. In verse 3, the word of the Lord came. In verse 4, Ezekiel says, I saw a windstorm coming out from the north. In verse 25, there came a voice. In verse 28, I heard the voice of one speaking. So like Moses in the burning bush, like Isaiah in his temple vision, like Paul on the road to Damascus, and like Ezekiel in exile, none of these men were trying to initiate a conversation with God. God takes the initiative. He comes to us. God takes the initiative, and that should be an encouragement. The, the last thing that we're going to consider tonight is God communicates. Sometimes we, we hear so much, so often, I mean, you can... You could spend your whole day reading Christian blogs and getting Christian Twitter updates and checking Christian Facebook updates, and we have access to authors that are like scholars and theologians and absolutely amazing. We, can, we, can, we don't have to get in a buggy or a carriage and travel to hear a good pastor. We, we, we can... We, can, we have local pastors that preach week in and week out that do a great job. And then if we do like a particular pastor, we can go and download any of their sermons at, at any point, really, um, during the day. We have all this access. And sometimes I think that can make us numb to the fact that God communicates with us. That should, that should just floor us. God communicates. It's interesting that at the end of Ezekiel chapter 1, at the end of this extraordinary vision, I mean colors and glowing and fire like sapphire, like crystal, these like animal, partial human thing, like all of this really vision-oriented, spectacular, visually detailed things, all that God reveals in himself, it's, a, it's, it's interesting that chapter one reaches its peak not with something for the eyes. I mean, there's so much to, to consider visually in chapter 1, and it's interesting that by the end of the chapter, it does not find its peak with something for the eyes, but with a word to the ears, because God communicates. It says at the very end, it, it reaches its peak, and I heard the voice of one speaking. The peak was not what he saw. What he saw was amazing, but it reached its peak on what he heard. When we gather for any corporate time, what is central to every gathering of corporate worship at Crosspoint? What is central? What is central? The word. Yeah. I was kind of hoping it would be one of those Romans 15 one voice kind of answers. like The word! That would have been a cool moment, but y'all ruined it for me. Thanks. Um, 
But yeah, what's central to every gathering at Crosspoint? The word. We're not here to share our opinions. We believe that God communicates and we believe he does it through this word. Why else would we could ever give a rip about studying Ezekiel or Lamentations or Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of these other law books, Leviticus? Because God communicates. The reason for this is that God does not want a relationship at a distance. This is a reminder that we have from Ezekiel chapter 1. God doesn't want a relationship at a distance. And it's much bigger than visual sensation and those mountaintop experiences. God wants a relationship with his children. He wants covenant love. And this is why we go to the word to hear from God. And why we even use the word to go to him with our requests. When you go to God, you're supposed to do so in the word, with the word. When you want to hear from God, you, you go to the word and you, and you utilize the word. Prayer is never near what it could be if you were in the word while you were praying. And the word is never what it could be if you were praying when you were in it. And so it's all central on what God has communicated to us. Verbal communication is what makes relationships. Imagine if you entered into this covenant relationship of marriage and just hoped that there could never be verbal communication. Some of you right now might be thinking, oh, that would be such a relief. I could get some rest from this. Um, if that's where you're at, just I'll be here afterwards. I'd love to talk to you and um, work through that. But verbal communication is what makes relationships. It's why it's so important not to neglect to meet together. Scripture makes it don't neglect to meet together. In one sense, we cannot have a relationship with others without actual engagement. And in another sense, we cannot neglect taking time to hear from God's word together. And even the words that we speak to each other are immensely affected by how God communicates. Ephesians 4 says about your words. This is, what, this is the expectation on your words. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Because of the way God communicates with us, that's how we're supposed to communicate with each other. Nothing defiling, nothing that breaks down, nothing that beats you up, nothing that's rude, nothing that is crude, inappropriate. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Not just corrupt talk, there's an ING on that, because corrupt talk has a trajectory to corrupt others. But only such as is good for building up. That's the only words that are supposed to ever come out of your mouth because of the way that God communicates to us are words that build up. That fits the occasion. That means you have to be prayerful and seeking God's wisdom on, okay, this is the occasion, what do I say? Proverbs says only a fool enjoys expressing his own opinion and hearing himself talk without thinking about what he says. That there's a word that fits the occasion that's appropriate to be spoken that it may give grace to those who hear. Because of the way that God communicates to us, your words can actually extend grace to other people when used in a godly manner. A final encouragement I want us to look at is in Romans 12. I love Romans 12. Turn there. Romans 12 is a chapter that had a, just a massive impact on my life. In the first few years here at Crosspoint, trying to understand God's calling, God's calling for the Christian, God's calling just in general, God's calling in ministry, and Romans 12 talks about how your entire created purpose is to live for the glory of God. The whole reason you're on planet Earth, the whole reason you had new mercies this morning, the whole reason you have a borrowed breath is so that you would be a living sacrifice that glorifies God. And then it says in 
chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. If you're in a bad place and you're not clear on who God is, that, that verse is going to be frustrating at best, right? If you're in a place where you're not seeing God clearly and, and you're struggling and someone says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. That could sound almost sort of trite and small and like, that's all you got. But the reality is the reason he would share that at that point and expect that we could actually do that and expect that it would actually matter. I'm thinking about the hope that Israel needs when they're in exile. And I'm thinking about the patience that they're going to need because of the tribulation that they're facing that is extremely significant. Everything they've ever owned. Imagine if tomorrow America didn't exist anymore. No more America. Would that shake you up a little bit? Would you wonder, all right, who am I? (laughs) What do I do? How how do I move? Where do I go? Who do I identify with? What what are the laws? What are the rules? How am I supposed to function? If you're in a circumstance where everything changed, hope, patience and tribulation and constancy and prayer, you would hope that that was a possibility. And what I want us to see tonight, just from this first chapter of Ezekiel, is we're actually able to rejoice in hope and to be patient in tribulation and to be constant in prayer because God communicates, because God initiates, because God is not limited by circumstances, because God is all-powerful, because God is all-wise, and because ultimately God is not like us. We actually can rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Who he is has a massive effect on every single part of our lives, the good and the bad. Next week, we're going to talk about the second vision, and, uh, and we'll cover a little more text than just one chapter, but tonight it was appropriate to stay in the first one. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this time tonight. Um, you are great and greatly to be praised, and we don't even know fully what that means, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the vision that you gave to Ezekiel. I'm thankful that in the the weird, unfamiliar imagery of that vision that we're reminded of some pretty profound and timeless truths about how you are not limited by anything. You communicate, you're powerful, you're mighty, and you're not like us. We are thankful to be created in your image. And I pray that as image bearers, we would seek to put your glory on display in light of the beauty you reveal to us when you reveal yourself to us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.